Well, as I said, as I prayed, turn to the book of Colossians, where we take another look this morning at a, another chunk of Paul's letter to this church of Colossae. We're going to read Colossians 2, 8 to 17 this morning. Right here in the middle of the letter, we kind of get to the heart of the matter. We get to what we might call a, the polemic section, where Paul's addressing this concern that he has for this church in Colossae. There's a, well, a potential Colossian captivity about to take place as this body of false teaching is propagated in their area. Here's what Paul says, Colossians 2, starting in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him, who's the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We can see from your sermon notes page, this begins with a warning. Don't return to captivity in verse 8. Remember, Colossians is written in part because of this concern, this false teaching that perhaps started to infiltrate the church at Colossae. We don't know how far it penetrated. We don't know how much trouble it caused, but it's around the area at the very least, and Paul's concerned about it. This teaching, I've said before, it's worth reviewing, is what we might call Gnosticism, even though Gnosticism didn't show up basically in that form, in that official terminology for another hundred years, it's an early form of what would later be known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism means knowledge, and it's a kind of belief system that believes there's hidden knowledge, and it's all about getting this hidden knowledge. What Paul's addressing, what he's concerned about here in this book of Colossians is this false teaching that there's a spiritual fullness that's available to some if they have this hidden knowledge. That there's this fascination with the spiritual realm. Apparently angels are acting as some kind of intermediators. There's even possibly the worship of angels going on, we'll see later in this chapter. There's asceticism. That is, the punishing of the flesh, inducing pain and suffering on the flesh, it's thought, in order to limit the temptations towards sin. 
Verses 21 to 23 give us some rules of asceticism that went along with this Colossian false teaching. And then there's also some Old Testament ritualism that's attached to this false teaching. It has to do with circumcision in verse 11. has to do with the Jewish calendar, Jewish feasts in verses 16 and 17. And then down in verse 21, there are some other Old Testament regulations that are hinted at and mixed in with asceticism. Do not touch, do not handle, do not taste. We'll get to those later on as we go through this book some more. But Paul says here in verse 8, this body of false teaching is based on five different things. It's based on philosophy. Now, Paul is not condemning all philosophy and all philosophy majors. Philosophy here is more like worldview. Philosophy here is more like approach to knowledge. And I think if we could question Paul and ask him for clarification, he'd be glad to say that there are good philosophies and there are bad philosophies, just like there are good worldviews and bad worldviews. Here he's obviously talking about bad philosophy when he says that this teaching is based on philosophy. This false teaching is merely based on philosophy, merely based on human thinking. In fact... That's what he says later on, human tradition. He says, empty deceit. These false teachers were likely pretty cunning, pretty clever, pretty sophisticated, and perhaps persuasive. In chapter 2, verse 4, it says they tried to delude them with plausible arguments. It sounds plausible. In verse 23, later on in this chapter, Paul says their arguments have the appearance of wisdom. It looks Pretty good, pretty convincing. Good salesman. But it's all empty, empty deceit. It's all deception. I remember my son a couple years ago, he must have been four or so at the time, he, he looked up at a hot air balloon. We have those here, right? You see them from time to time. And a four-year-old looked up and said, what's inside the balloon? And I knew he meant not in the basket, in the big part. What's in there? I don't know if he thought maybe, you know, there'd be a motor in there making the thing go or, you know, monkeys with a big crank or something. And I said, nothing's in there. Nothing, just hot air. Hot air is what makes it go up. It's beautiful on the outside, but think about it. It's empty on the inside. Well, that's like this false teaching. Except the false teachers were saying that this hot air balloon of truth had a 454 engine in it. It doesn't, but they said it did. Right? And, and really what Paul's saying is it looks like it's moving. It looks beautiful and grand with a hot air balloon. That's a good thing. It's, it's majestic and romantic as part of the mystique that it's just filled with air. That you don't hear anything except for the flame. Yes, it's quiet and beautiful and wonderful, but with false teaching, you don't, want, you don't want a hot air balloon model for your worldview, for your faith. You don't want something that is beautiful emptiness. You don't want something that's merely hot air, merely something that's based on human tradition. See that phrase? Later on in verse 22, Paul will say that their teaching is according to human precepts and teaching, not based on the normal means of divine revelation. 
what First Peter one twenty sorry, Second Peter one twenty one says that that revelation we have is not of human will. The Bible is not of human doing, not of them making it up, but men were moved by the Holy Spirit to write it down. God spoke. But this false teaching in Colossae was made up. It was passed around and cycled around like merely human tradition, very different than the model of knowledge that the Bereans had. Remember the noble Bereans in Acts chapter 17? They were more noble, it says, because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things that they were being taught were so, were true. Now, if you ask these false teachers in and around Colossae for chapter and verse for what they're teaching, one of two things happened. Either they, they scoffed, they sneered at the whole idea of, you know, oh, Bible verse, oh, okay, you know, it's in the Bible. Well, you know, we're teaching something that's greater than the Bible, not something you'd find in the Bible. Or they would have pointed to a, a verse here, a passage there taken out of context. It may have a Bible verse here or a Bible verse there, but it's really a system that's based more on human tradition than on biblical revelation. It's according, Paul says, to elementary spirits. Spirits of the world. What does this mean? Earthly spirits. I I think he means that this teaching is at root demonic. I think he's saying it has some kind of attachment to demons. And perhaps that's so because it wrongly seeks to tap into a spiritual realm. Look down at verse 18, where Paul talks about the worship of angels and going on in detail about visions. He's talking about some sort of tapping into the spiritual realm. That's not natural for biblical Christianity. And hence, this teaching is at root demonically influenced. And in short, it's just not according to Christ. See that? What a great summary. Whatever else it is, it's not according to Christ. Don't be taken captive by anything that's not according to Christ. Now, why? Why not? What's the alternative? Well, then Paul gives... A much better alternative to this pop false teaching in and around Colossae. He says, first, in Christ there is fullness. There's fullness in Christ. There's not fullness in this false teaching being cycled about, even though they said there was fullness. That was kind of the the main point of their message. That there was a fullness to it. He had a spiritual fullness That's yours if you find out this secret knowledge, if you get this pathway that that we've learned. You know, sacrificing your comforts, putting hurt on your flesh in order to, to restrain your evil, figuring out the matrix system of the spiritual realm in order to have authority over demons. Once you get over all these hurdles, these false teachers would have said, then there's fullness And Paul says there's fullness already. There's fullness in Christ, not Christ plus something. Notice the progression there in verse 9 and 10. He says, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We have fullness in Christ. Christ 
is fully God. He's the head in rule of everything, he says at the end of verse 10. And now they have Christ, they're in him, so they're filled with the Spirit. And if they're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Christ who is God, then they already have the fullness of God in Christ. That's where the fullness of deity dwells. So literally what Paul's saying here, what it could be translated as is, you have come to the fullness of life in him. Past tense, it's already done. You already have it. Of course, Christians are to grow more in it. They're to realize it more deeply, right? They're to spread it about more broadly, yes. But they already, in principle, have the fullness. The fullness is Christ. There's a a now and not yet to this, isn't there? We say that from time to time. It's a a good sort of interpretive phrase to tuck away for your Bible reading. To remember this age that we live in, in between Christ's first coming and his second coming, we could call it now and not yet. That the plan all along was eventually God's glory would cover the earth as the waters do the sea. And that's now, in a sense. Proof is that we're here believing in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This thing went global. This thing is pervasive. It's not yet as far as it will go. It's not yet to every tongue and tribe and culture and nation, every people group. But, but it's so many people groups that have received the truth. Well, in those who have received the truth have the fullness of God Already, the age to come is now here. There's a presence of the future. The last days are here and among us. And Jesus' miracles back in the first century were little hints of that. The fact that heaven and earth were now beginning to meet. One day they will be fully met together, right? There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. But in principle, we already have this. In principle, we're already in that realm. We're already, according to Ephesians 1, we're already seated in the heavenly places. And yet we're here on earth. We're here in dry and dusty Albuquerque, New Mexico. I mean, on the one hand, Paul can say, you have the fullness. Elsewhere, he says things like, Right now, we only see through a dark glass. And one day, we'll see him face to face. The dark glass he's referring to is scripture. And in first century times, they didn't have windows and mirrors as clear as ours. It would be dim. It'd be fuzzy. It'd be a a little bit blurry, a, a little bit distorted. It'd be like looking perhaps at a really good piece of stainless steel. Not quite like a mirror. And Paul uses that kind of word to describe the the Bible. Perfect as it is, inerrant as as it be. It's not Christ. One day we'll see him face to face. Right now we look at him intently through this dark glass, this dim mirror. But in Colossians, what he's emphasizing is not what we don't have yet, but what we have now. Because... 
because of this false teaching, because the false teaching has been spreading around in this area and, and saying that you don't have it yet, but, but here we have the answers, we have the secret. And if you do steps one through seven, you can break on through to the other side. There's fullness there. No, in Christ already, there's fullness. Secondly, in Christ, there's true circumcision, Paul says. Look at verse 11. He says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Boy, what does this mean? Let's start with just circumcision. If you know much about the Bible, you know that that has a long history in, in God's plan. Way back in Genesis 17, God gave circumcision as a as a rite, a symbol to Father Abraham and to his descendants as a covenant of God's promises. It was a picture of what needed to happen. The flesh needed to be cut off. The flesh, as a symbol for sin, needed to be rooted out. Now, remember, throughout the Old Testament, there's a, a very physical orientation, Right? to the worship and the laws there. It's very physical. Just the word worship means literally to bow your, your body. In the New Testament, that word for worship is barely used, only a couple of times. Different words for worship are used. Different descriptions are used because now it's no longer just a physical movement. There's something of an inner heart that needs to to worship God in spirit and in truth, Jesus said in John chapter 4. So most of those physical outward worship things of the Old Testament were meant to picture and anticipate in the future a spiritual inner reality that's fulfilled in Christ. Now, spiritual circumcision is really what's needed then. Physical circumcision is just a picture of the heart problem. It really wasn't it really wasn't a problem down there, shall we say. Right? Now let me give you some verses for spiritual circumcision in the Old Testament where you see that really what's needed is not physical circumcision, though God commanded it, and though people got in big trouble for not circumcising their sons. Really what it was pointing to was something more important than that. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. It says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God and follow in his ways. In order to love him, in order to follow him, something needs to be done at a heart level, dare we say, not just at a tip level. Jeremiah 4. God calls on the people there. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart. But you can't do that, can you? You know, circumcision's bad enough. Heart circumcision is impossible. There's no moil in the world that can do heart circumcision, that can root out sin. Romans 2 talks about those who have it, though. Romans 2, verse 28 and 29, Paul says, He is not a Jew who is one merely outwardly only, nor is circumcision that which is outward. 
But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit. Or one more, Philippians 3.3, where Paul says, We are the true circumcision who worship the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. True circumcision isn't confidence in the flesh, it's confidence in Christ with a new heart. And so Paul says, Here, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, that they've been circumcised with a circumcision that's done not with hands. That means it's a spiritual one. This contrast between the physical and spiritual circumcision is so clear, such a powerful word picture. Again, it's that we need God to do spiritual surgery on our hearts. The foreskin was never the problem. The root of sin does not lie there. Physical circumcision never fixed anybody. We need new hearts. We need a law written on our hearts. We need God to give us desires for him. Perseverance with him in his ways. And the law of the Old Testament could not do that. The law itself could not do that. It doesn't mean God didn't do it in Old Testament times, but the Old Testament Mosaic law by itself can't do that. The law is good, Paul says, in that it shows us sin. It shows us trouble. It shows us judgment. It shows us need. It demonstrates that there's a problem as we fail to do the law. It demonstrates that we can't fix the problem on our own, in our own strength. But the gospel is not only forgiveness, it's new desires, new ability. A a surgical, spiritual, precision cut to start to get away the sin. Not perfectly yet. Again, now and not yet. But it's already there in principle. So John Bunyan used to say, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives you neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids you fly, and it gives you wings. Only that comes by the circumcision of Christ. Now, what does that mean? When It says there at the end of verse 11, this comes by the circumcision of Christ. That means his death. Not literally his circumcision, like his circumcision was the perfect circumcision and, you know, we get the benefits of his perfect circumcision. No. Uh, Circumcision means cut off. And cut off is one way that the Bible describes Jesus' death. He was cut off. He was cut off. He was cut off from the people. He was cut off from the presence of God. He, in his death, was our purification. Thirdly, we see this in Colossians 2, that in Christ there's resurrection. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You were dead in your trespasses, verse 13 says, the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made you alive together with him. He gave uh, an Old Testament word picture, circumcision. Christ is the true circumcision. 
And now he gives a, a New Testament word picture, baptism. Where water baptism is a picture of a, a spiritual baptism. And that spiritual baptism is a uniting with Christ. It's an identifying with Christ. Baptism, whether that's physical water baptism or spiritual union baptism with Christ, it's an identification with his death and burial and resurrection. It's saying that this is my hope. This is where I cast my lot on one weekend. The, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it's also a symbol of our own spiritual resurrection. What John 3 calls new birth. What 2 Corinthians 5 calls new creatures, new creation. What Romans 6 describes as death to our old self and a resurrection of a new self. We've been buried with him. We've been raised with him. And now we've been set free from blindness. Set free from Spiritual deadness, set free from spiritual inability. And again, it's a now and not yet, isn't it? There is another resurrection to come for Christians. Then we will be like him, and we will be with him at the second coming of Christ. But we have that in principle now. We already identify with his resurrection. In his resurrection, we have life. We share in that already. And that's one of the reasons why we can be sure about another further bodily resurrection someday when Christ returns because we already have a spiritual resurrection now. And we already have that because Christ has already been raised from the dead now. So you are alive. By virtue of your union with his resurrection, you have been made alive. Remember what Paul's getting at here. The Colossians were perhaps hearing news of this teaching and perhaps dabbling in, starting to entertain this teaching that, that somehow outside of Christ or in addition to Christ, there is some fullness to be had. Paul's saying the fullness is already yours. The defeat of sin has already happened. He's already circumcised your hearts. You already are alive. People talk today about feeling alive. Oh, I feel so alive after jumping out of an airplane. You know, I feel so alive after great vacation. You know, expensive dinner, great sex, whatever. People say, I feel so alive. What Paul's saying is you don't need those things in order to feel alive like is truly alive, you have already, if you're in Christ, been made alive in him. And hence, when he said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, that means you. I, I know it doesn't feel very abundant. I know that you don't sometimes in Christ feel very alive. Now and not yet. One day we will finally utterly, completely, pervasively, consistently feel alive. In the meantime, if you're in Christ, in principle, that's yours. He has made you alive by virtue of his resurrection. That's now yours through faith. Fourth, in Christ, there's 
You could call it debt forgiveness. In the middle of verse 13 there, actually at the end, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Another word picture here. It's a word picture of a record, a record of debts that stands against us. The debts are obviously sin. It's as if there is this record of all of our sins. You know, New York City phone book size. This record of our sins, Paul says, stands against us. This record is not, you know, some good things, some bad things. Well, let's weigh it out. No, it's against us. It's all on one side. The scale is is heavily weighted with the, the weight of the New York City phone book record of our sins. It's against us, and there's a legal demand. See that phrase that comes along with it? The record of debt with its legal demands means death. That's the demand. That was the demand way back in the garden. The day you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. What kind of death? Well, it meant a spiritual death, which is spiritual blindness. It meant physical death, which eventually happened, right? Adam and Eve lived a long time, but but death entered the world the moment they sinned. And it's eternal death as well. So what do we do about this, this record of debt that stands against us with its legal demands? You can try to work it down, but how? how? How do you work it down? Well, by being good. Well, doesn't he command us to be good anyway? Does it say anywhere that being good cancels out the bad you've done? Nope. Being good is what he expects, right? Being righteous as our Father in heaven is righteous is what he expects. Being righteous even if we are, even if we ever are doesn't do anything to take away old sins. And we just try to debate it when we get up there, justify it with the judge. Judge, you don't understand. Look, there's an explanation for every single one of those. Let's start with page one. Yeah, right. Well, what most people try to do is ignore it. Ignore that record of death that stands against them and Pretend that there won't be a payment to come even though our consciences tell us that it is there, it is coming. But in Christ, this certificate of debt and its legal demands have been set aside. Can you just for a moment live in light of the weight of your record of debt with its legal demands and feel the hopelessness of that? Feel the weight of the judgment of that. I, I know if you're in Christ, you're used to the idea of forgiveness. But what if? What if you were outside Christ? What if you were outside the promises? What if his love didn't extend to you? What, what if he didn't give you faith and a new heart to believe and repent? Sit there for a moment. And just feel the hopelessness of his wrath. And then hear the wonderful good news that he set it aside. 
set it aside. Not just set it aside, verse 14, he nailed this record of debt to the cross. Now, a lot of times in Roman crucifixion, there, there was something nailed to the cross, a, a record of, of crimes. They would often post that with the person being crucified so that passers-by could go up and see this poor guy bleeding to death, but also see what it was for. It was a deterrent from doing that thing that he did and is now dying for. But there's no, there's no mention of that in the Gospels, right? That Jesus had some sort of certificate of his crimes that was nailed to the cross. No, he was the certificate. He embodied that debt. He embodied its payment. He took the legal demands upon himself in far better than any certificate that's stamped four times by a notary. Far better than any kind of piece of paper that could be theoretically nailed to a cross or thrown away or shredded. Christ is the certificate. He took our sins, and he, in his flesh, gives us freedom. So do you want to know that you're free? Look to the cross. Look to the cross, and the cross alone. See the debt that he paid. Believe that in love he came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came. He came, according to Colossians 1, to reconcile us to God through his blood. That's already done. He already died. He said it is finished as he breathed his last. And he rose victoriously on the third day to confirm that all that he said in his life and ministry was true and all that he did upon the cross worked. What he said would happen at the cross where he would die for sins, die in the place of sinners, worked. The substitute sacrifice has been accepted by God already. So we simply believe that that's so and we receive it as a gift. Which means that really bad sinners, really bad ones, can come to him and be forgiven. Really big books of sin can be nailed to the tree. And it encourages assurance for Christians to be more rooted in him and his work than their own feelings, than their own performance, than even their own faith. You know, if we asked ourselves, why do I believe that I'm a Christian and my sins are forgiven? Some biblical options for that answer would be, well, I can see some fruit in my life. That's part of what the Bible describes for evidence of being a Christian. You could also say, I sense that it's so. The spirit is within me crying that there's adoption here. Abba, Father, he's mine. I believe it because I sense it and feel it. And that's part of what it means to know that we're Christians. It's subjective in part. But there's another way too. One way is to look outside of ourselves for hope. 
There's another angle to assurance which is much more Christ-centered and less about me and how I'm doing and how it went last week and what's going to happen tomorrow. So many places in the Bible encourage Christians to feel assured because of something outside of them, because of something Christ did. He died because of his love being unchanging. Because his covenant is rooted in himself, not in, not in the consistency of devotions or giving or witness. All wonderful things and commanded things. But they have their ups and downs. And too often, I think, we feel, especially some of us, some of us with a a fragile kind of personality. We feel as though God's love goes up and down with the success of, of my performance and the failures that come the next day. But again, so many places in the Bible encourage assurance simply because his promises won't fail and because this whole thing is his work from start to finish. So remember that old hymn, My sin, oh, the bliss of this wonderful thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. The fifth thing here in Colossians 2 is that in Christ there is triumph already. Triumph already. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, he says in verse 15. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, in ancient battles, there was no TV coverage. I thought I should tell you that. Obviously, there was no TV coverage in ancient battles, but here's how that's different from the day in which we live. There's no TV coverage in their day to let the people back home know how it's going. They don't have Wolf Blitzer on the field reporting, you know, this was bombed, look out over there, this looks pretty bad here. So back in ancient times, Paul's time, rumors would spread throughout the the home city about how the war was going, but you didn't really know. You, You didn't really have anything definitive until the army came home. And if the army had won, the army came home marching, celebrating, And they walked straight through city center, the plaza. They walked through and they would display the spoils of the other army for everyone to see. It was a declaration of their their victory by showing the defeated army's shields, defeated army's helmets, torn flag, some heads on a stick. And some captured from the opposing army there at the end of the march, trailing behind. All prominently displayed as symbols of their triumph and reasons to celebrate. Well, that's the picture that Paul paints for us here in verse 15 about Christ's victory over Satan. Over Satan and and his army. Paul says Christ has stripped them of their armor. Christ is on march in the city center. 
displaying the spoils of his victory over Satan and fallen angels. He's triumphed over them. He's laid them to shame. They've been stripped of their weapons. Now, when did Christ do this? When was his victory won? An important question, right? When and how did he disarm them, like Paul says, or triumph over them? Believe it or not, at the cross is when this happened. At the cross is when Christ was doing this. What amazing irony. Christ, stripped of his clothes, mocked, beaten, tied up and spit upon like a prisoner of war in ancient Near East. He was seemingly defeated. And this was his victory. This was his march. This was his triumph. In fact, this word in verse 15 that says disarmed in the ESV can be translated either disarmed or disrobed. Kind of a play on words. Christ was disrobed. But in the process, he was disrobing his enemies. He was disarming his enemies. So we will not fear. As Martin Luther taught us to sing, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word from Christ shall fell him, shall trip him, shall crush him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, it it, it abideth. Luther said the spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. So now we can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Now again, now and not yet. On the one hand, Scripture says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he'll devour, 1 Peter 5.8. On the other hand, according to Colossians 2, he's a weaponless general. How comical. A weaponless army? What is that? That's a marching band. That is anything but threatening. I'm sorry if you were in the marching band, but that's anything but threatening. Right? A weaponless general? He's a toothless lion. (laughs) Now, now both are true. There's a time to be sober, like 1 Peter 5, 8 says about our adversary. He's against us. He's real. He is roaring like a lion. He's not yet utterly conquered. He's defeated in principle. It's as good as done. But yet he still is busy. He's still doing stuff. There's a time to think on that. And there's a time to laugh. 
as a time to eat and drink and celebrate and make love like only Christians can do. There's a time to sleep well precisely because the adversary, the devil, is crushed. He can do nothing. Not one hair will fall to the ground apart from your father's pleasure. Nothing and no one can now separate us from the love which is in Christ Jesus. One more quickly. In Christ, there's fulfillment of Old Testament shadows. Verse 16 and 17, let's read this. And after Christmas and New Year's, we'll come back to these verses to look at them more carefully. They say, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Again, we'll come back to these in upcoming weeks and look a little more carefully at what they mean and what it means that there's this move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There are some things of Old Testament law that we don't do as Christians today. Today, I only want to show you that these verses, verses 16 and 17, are connected to this whole train of thought that began in verse 8 with that caution, that warning not to get caught up or captivated by this false teaching. His point in verse 16 and 17 is don't be held captive even by a return to Old Testament law. Some of the other stuff was far enough away for most of us here that we think, oh, of course not. Don't get tripped up by human traditions. Don't get tripped up by sacrificing wants and comforts that, you know, to think that that pleasure is all bad and and thereby pain will, will kind of give me some spiritual power. But even something given by God, Old Testament law, here can be something that's in addition to Christ. So Paul says, no one can pass judgment on you regarding Old Testament food laws. No one can pass judgment on you on Old Testament feasts or or Old Testament holy days. These had their place. These had their time. But like circumcision, they pointed to a greater spiritual reality in Christ. They were shadows in, in the substance has come. The substance is Christ. You see a shadow walking, you suspect it's not just a shadow walking. There's a person And when the person comes, you don't keep staring at the shadow. You talk to the person or run from the person, depending on what time of night this is. But the substance of Christ, we don't run from him. We embrace him and and we don't go back to the shadows. Colossians, Paul would have said, you already have the substance. Why would you go back to the shadows? It's not Christ plus a return to the Old Testament menu in the Old Testament calendar. Fullness isn't had there. You have fullness directly from Christ and only in Christ. Defeat of sin isn't had in these things, just like it wasn't had in circumcision. Conquering Satan doesn't happen by going back to the Mosaic law. You're not united by Christ by trying to be a little Jewish? No. Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is all. In him we have 
fullness. In him, there's true circumcision. There's power over sin and desire to do sin. In him, there's now life, real life, resurrection life. There's debt that's canceled out, triumph already, even over the best of his enemies. There's fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is our Christ. Let me pray for protection and for Christ-centeredness and for us to be satisfied with all that Christ is for us. Lord, we pray indeed for protection. That we wouldn't be deceived, that we wouldn't be taken captive by false teaching, but Lord, let everything be according to Christ and according to his word. Give us a a passionate, relentless Christ-centeredness. Lord, let us not move on from Christ as though there was something to move on to. Lord, not only give us him and keep us fixed on him, but let us be satisfied in him. In John 7, he said that he is living water. And in him, we can have a fountain of living water that's flowing up and bubbling over. We pray for that here. We pray for more quench, more satisfaction, more of tasting of his goodness and seeing indeed that he's good. 